Welcome to A Partial Perspective. My name is William, and this first episode of this season's summer podcast series is with Dr. Antoinette Jackson. She's the new chair of the Applied Anthropology Department at the University of South Florida. In this conversation, we talk about her newest book, The Other Side of Leisure, which discusses leisure activities, both in state parks as well as other activities that African-Americans have engaged in that have been different from that of the regular way that we tend to talk about leisure, tourism, and all of the things that we kind of take for granted. In this discussion, she talks about her critical race theoretical perspective and how she applies it. So it's, it's great to, to get to talk <laughs> finally, to you. Finally, finally, how yeah. we, we get this in. It takes a yeah. pandemic, huh? <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> now everybody's available. Yes. <laughs> uh, congratulations again. Like, I haven't seen you since the formal announcement, but congratulations on being the, the new chair of the anthropology department at USF. Oh, thank you so much. It is quite a quite a quite an honor and, and quite a task ahead, but I'm, yeah. I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the fact that it's like passing on to the the new chair in the middle of a pandemic, like how's how's that whole transition been? Yes, uh, the transition we're in the transition phase right now, and like I said, uh, I had when I wrote my kind of statement to the group, it's when I took on the job or ran for chair, I had no, of course, no idea that we'd be in this situation. So uh, it's kind of surreal. Uh, but now it's enabling me to see the positives and the negatives because it was going to be a situ- situation of change because we we're going to transition to a new chair. And now, yeah. you know, we are in the middle of change by definition. So uh, okay. it makes it easier. This word change doesn't have to just uh, rely so- solely on the transition to a new chair. We're in change. So uh, it takes a little bit of the the pressure off of the notion of change. And so in looking at it that way, it's, um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting scenario. Um, yeah, it definitely seems like it. Yeah. But it, it definitely, you know, changes, you know, now I'm thinking pre post coronavirus in terms of, and we're not even post yet. So just what is it that's going to look, what's post going to look like? So, um, so right. it just adds to the stakes of, you know, the transition. And I'm, I'm even more appreciative of the team that's in place right now um, until the official transition ends, which is when I started August. Um, okay. You know, all the work that they have to do now in the middle of, a, you know, this crisis as it's unfolding. That's, uh, you know, right. it's quite an effort. I can't imagine what it would be to be starting with other, either like teaching appointments now mm-hmm. or heading into graduate school now yeah like what's it going to be like for the new cohort that comes in yes do do you have like a like a handle on that as well no because everything is up in the air for the new cohort um in that well not everything is up in the air but in terms of what to plan for beyond you know even beyond summer like right now we're just even thinking about what will fall look like just what will fall look like is that won't be perhaps won't be a normal fall so um, the fact that you can't give people any definitives, though, I definitely can't give anyone a definitive at this moment. It's yeah. um, it's 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 um, it makes it frustrating, especially for people who are just coming into a situation. I think yeah. for people who are already in it, 
then it's another adjustment, a, a, a huge one, but it's still an adjustment. Um, coming in, you want a little bit more uh, assurances about what things are going to look like so you can, you know, plan and get yourself together and enter a new situation. But right right now, I, I, like I said, I, I think I just can um, be available for people and be flexible um, in terms of the, the things that they are concerned about, the things that they are going to, to need on a personal level and also mm-hmm. a professional level. I think it's more emphasis than on just making sure people um, feel that they can uh, have the flexibility to do those things and manage their personal life. And right. since so many things are in flux. So having that yeah. kind of um, being ready to be open to the, the things people need in that regard. Yeah, that's a good, good way of thinking about it because it's interesting how we will usually spit between like personal needs yes. versus like academic yes. needs. And, like they're like separate things. But right. <laughs> like, like they're they're all by definition like all together yes. and affecting each other. Yeah. Like even thinking about how I wanted to like approach talking to you. Like, right. <laughs> I was thinking of it like that, like, oh, personal, like how what's your experience <laughs> like with COVID? But then like by definition everything sort of it like, merges together. together now. It yes. Does. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, so that's the only thing to make sure that we understand. I think that's the only thing that's kind of consistent is that everybody is managing on so many different levels and nothing is really stable on any level. And you have to allow people that room to do it, yeah. to make adjustments because we're all trying to make them. Yeah. So, yeah, that's so true. Yeah. And it reminds me of, uh, so your new book just came out this <laughs> yes. year. Yeah. Um. And it's on, so it's called The Other Side of Leisure, Heritage, Tourism, and Race. Yes. And in it, you're talking about just that, like, leisure and about national parks, mm-hmm. about, like, you mentioned the Green Book, mm-hmm. which I hadn't, I didn't know too much about. <laughs> yes. I just remember that there was a movie. Yes. And, oh, yeah. <laughs> and that was, <laughs> yeah. I, what's your, what's your take on the movie and I guess, that concept of the Green Book? Well, the publisher asked me because the movie came out when I was at the at the end. The book wasn't going into publication, but I had to yeah. add like they I needed to make a comment. And, and so in yeah. that chapter, there is a little bit of a comment. But really, you know, the movie is just one perspective on, you know, and it's really not about the Green Book. The movie right. is not about the Green Book. So first of uh, all, there is no comment because no. <laughs> they use the, they use that as a as a way, a hook. Right, and so the 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 foundation of the movie is really <laughs> the Green Book. So, <laughs> you know, and they casually mention the Green Book. So I oh, really wow. can't say that it's they do anything other than people who may not have heard heard the word Green Book like you, right? Will say, "Oh, what is that?" And other mm-hmm. than that, they don't really interrogate it. They don't really give it any kind of full credence of what mm-hmm. what that really meant. Um, for black travelers or people who were excluded from places of, um, you know, hotels or restaurants or places of business, they don't really go into that, the function of the Green Book, the really big function of the Green Book and how strategic it was. That's not what the movie is about. So, Yeah, like in the book, you you talk about the Green Book, how it pulling from your your book and information of safe places to eat sleep tour have mm-hmm. fun yeah go to the restroom get gas so it offered what you called like solutions to issues of segregation mm-hmm. but there were solutions on basically like a do and do not list almost yeah so like 
within that, you're also talking about the larger, mm -hmm. like, what black families and individuals were allowed kind of to do, maybe mm -hmm. implicitly, mm -hmm. maybe a little bit more explicitly. Mm -hmm. um, and you talk about the national parks, and you also talked about how, um, I guess, the national park partially didn't want to, like, incorporate the findings <laughs> of, like, the Biscay National Park. Yeah about like the interactions with like <laughs> sort of the you know African-American families. Yeah. I don't know if you could talk about that. Yeah. Decision and yeah. You know, one of the things, so the green book does give a definitive roadmap to black travelers, particularly their audience were, was black travelers and how they could, you know, find places uh, that were welcoming to them uh, in all basics of life, the basic necessities of life as a traveler. Um, but it also in a broader sense was a, um, a critique of the larger system. It was a critique from Black folks' perspective of uh, places that they were excluded by not being in the Green Book. People, the the people who wrote into that and 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 gave places that were welcoming and of a certain uh, standard, uh, they were saying they were also critiquing places who did not invite them or or they weren't mm -hmm. welcome. So it was like a, a by default a critique. If you are in the Green Book then an evaluation has been made of you uh, by yeah. a whole group of constituents. People don't kind of see it as, you know, I don't think people often talk about it in that way. And when I think about the National Park Service and they had a special issue uh, on the National Park Service in one of the um, years of the Green Book. And that, for national parks not to be on that list meant that the, the that they had been evaluated as not not making themselves welcoming or creating a space, a safe space for black folk to uh, enjoy the park or use the park. So, right. um, so I, when I bring it up in the context of the national park service, I also bring it up as a form of critique uh, mm -hmm. and how that people really did evaluate the choices available to them and, and look around at the national parks and say, who does what at these parks and, and, and list you in the book accordingly. So mm -hmm. that was a, a interesting thing, and in the parks, um, the Key Biscayne National Park um, down here in um, Florida, one of the things that parks and I found across the board is that they may not want to talk about their history of segregation, and um, they they often structured these parks, particularly the southern parks, where they had, you know, black area, white area, white black access, white access, and the, yeah. the what was interesting about the place down here in Florida is that they actually had a road that was only for black people to enter the park. And they yeah. had all, like segregation was so, <laughs> so uh, prevalent that they just really down to a road. Now it's always surprising to me how far segregation goes. But when I knew that they had a road into the park that it was the black road, it was just, mm -hmm. and the road is still there. They don't interpret that, of course. That's not part of the interpretation. Yeah. Um, uh. And, and the, the the visitor center itself sits on what was the 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 area of the Black Beach, and wow. so there is no interpretation wow. of that uh, in the in the in the uh, visitor center or anything to do with signage, at least not to, to the last time I had gone there. And they were, I had a student though. Though the park actually asked that people we do oral histories of the Black involvement mm -hmm. with that beach. Uh, yeah. And because they knew, I mean, they they obviously know. I mean, that the history of the park. But uh, even after the research was completed so far, they have not included that in any interpretation of the site, um, yeah. so, which is and, kind of um, discouraging. 
uh, yeah. uh, not to have to have that erasure of that history, even uh, if it told a kind of a negative uh, story of the park's position, but at least it, it would give you some perspective of where what was going on at that time and highlight the fact that black people did use that beach mm-hmm. and, and beaches all over the place. I mean, they actually were using national parks to the best that they could. Right. I wonder if adding, like putting the visitor center at that specific spot is a sort of form of erasure because yeah. you're basically putting a visitor center at a part of the beach that belonged to like was meant for the use of African-Americans. Yeah. And, now it's like we're opening it up to everybody, but you're also erasing the one yes, part that yeah. used to belong to them. Like, yeah, and I don't thing. know. I don't know if they. I mean, when in my conversations with them, I don't know if they built it with that erasure in mind. But the fact that right. they aren't interpreting it in the present mm-hmm. still does the same thing. I mean, <laughs> you right. know, even if that's not what you know, or they didn't weren't conscious of, or they just you know didn't uh, address it at that time when they actually physically built it. To not have it in conversation um, right now is a problem. <laughs> it's very problematic because it yeah. perpetuates the erasure every day that they don't say anything. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I can imagine them first building it there, trying to say like, "We're trying to highlight yeah, this maybe they- importance, <laughs> and we want to put the visitor center." But yeah. at the same time, there's like a discomfort around it that's mm. it comes out. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, and I think a lot of the park, not a lot, but the parks that I talk about in the book, I think they it is that level of discomfort. Like, do we mm-hmm. talk about this negative part of our history uh, yeah. when now we have the park open to everybody and, and all those kinds of things? What do we do about um, that aspect of park's history? And I think there, some parks really are, you know, they're confused about that or they don't know quite how to approach it. And then they are in some ways considering their current, their primary constituents um, mm. and the, the comfort level of the people that um, are their primary visitors, whether, you know, mm. I mean, that's what I've been told um, uh, as to some reason why some of the parks may not have that kind of uh, story, uh, the, the story of segregation and the park's role mm. at this point, because it makes some visitors, <laughs> non-Black visitors, um, maybe just dis- uncomfortable with that history. Right. Um, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Even thinking about like the fact that black visitors had a, sem- a separate entrance, it like, I don't know, it gives a different twist to like how divided and separate the experience mm-hmm. must have been. Yes. And I know in your research, you've done a lot of inter- interviews with individuals. I don't know if there's anything that sticks out in terms of that experience and what that was like. Cause I know that you also had, Stories from your own family from New Orleans that's mm-hmm. in the book a little bit. Yeah. Oh, you mean the story of just having the, to experience segregation in and of itself, whatever form it was taking, like not only just right. the road. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because, and that's one of the motivations for the book for me was because people, even people who directly, at least uh, the people that I've interviewed who directly experienced, uh, segregation in that form, that extreme form where you really were separated, separate entrances, separate places on the bus, separate, you know, parks, pools. Mm. Um, what stands out is that they, the, the, the things that they did do uh, mm-hmm. in terms of their recreation, in terms of their um, activities, in terms of their access and things like that, it, that was, uh, that was the emphasis uh, when people were telling me about the, their their experiences, and in in my 
overlay in the book is the overlay their discussion of their experiences of actually uh, experiencing uh, places of fun or leisure, but mm. juxtaposing that against the fact that, yeah, legally there was segregation. Legally, people couldn't go to a certain place. The Green Book highlights that in even more strategic uh, fashion. So most people didn't talk to me directly about what they couldn't do. Mm. <laughs> you know, unless yeah. I, you know, I, I, because I was interested in that juxtaposition, really had to to kind of uh, pull that out. I mean, they may have made an off statement like we didn't go there, but if I didn't yeah. probe and say, why didn't you go there? Like, you know, like what, mm-hmm. what was, then they would get into it a little bit more, but you know, they would say we didn't go there, but we, we were doing whatever. Right. So it's interesting yeah. that people, that's not the forefront in the, and that's not what they wanted to pass on. Mm-hmm. I think, especially people in my, my more personal level, I think they were more interested in, uh, you know, making sure the world seemed uh, accessible as broadly as possible for yeah. for their children or the people that were coming after them, as opposed to keeping it uh, in a small mm-hmm. context. So I think that was the reason. Not that they didn't have lots of critique, but it's just you know, and that was yeah, the tension. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like their lives all can't all be about critiquing yes. what they can't do. Like, yeah, that makes complete sense. Yeah. So, you know, they were, so they wanted to pass on what they were experiencing. And that's what I try to do in the book, too, is really mm-hmm. kind of show uh, all the things that people were doing, uh, all the things they were doing to critique it and work around or work in parallel to what was going on. And that's often not that silence, too, because right. people either assume they weren't doing anything at all or they don't have any idea what the, the nuances of what actually was going on on the right. other side of this, you know, this, these, this systemic segregation, they don't right. really have any conversation about that. <laughs> yeah. So I try what to was, show that. Yeah. What was like the, um, like most impactful or maybe surprising tip of, of information or maybe even story that you learned in your research for this book? Yeah. I think the, Hmm. I think the the most well, first of all, I think from my own personal family level, when I asked like my like I realized as even as a young person, I was like at places that I had no idea was the history like of the Lincoln Beach. Um, yeah. like I gotta say my aunt lived right near there, and I had like I had no <laughs> no association until co- concurrently I went back and started doing this like I started remembering, oh i I saw that, but i didn't it, it was no context to me. Uh, yeah. You know where the where the beach was or where um, the levee was, and it just didn't. Wow. I didn't think about it in that way. And just going back down those same roads again with this whole different understanding um, and yeah. historical perspective was really is kind of um, it was it was my it blew my mind in a lot of different yeah. ways. Such and, a shift, I imagine. Yeah. yeah, and then to hear my parents like just talk about something, I say, "Hey, you know about Lincoln Beach? Oh, yeah." We did like then they would tell me about a party, whatever they were doing on the beach, and I was like, "What?" <laughs> and so I was like, "Wow!" You know, it became very personal because at one yeah. point I was just kind of looking at it outward. And then right. the the other thing that was surprising to me was when I did the work in Kentucky, was mm-hmm. with the the, the caving, I, looking at things that don't are not historically or or 
typically associated with black folk in, in uh, leisure or black folk, folk in parks or anything like that, the, the uh, Mammoth Cave and the right. history of the cave caving families, uh, the black caving families and the, the tours and the lodging and all the things they were doing around caving yeah. way, way before the national park even became a park at that site wow. was very um, humbling actually, <laughs> because it was quite, you know, a, quite a history and in, in not to have that known in a broader sense. It, it was, it's, it's just, this yeah. just, uh, um, sad and, 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 and an opportunity, I guess, at the same time. Um, Can you explain more about like the caving? Yeah. The Mammoth Cave is like one of the largest and it's in Mammoth uh, Cave is in uh, Kentucky, more in, closer to Bowling Green or, or the, the Tennessee, well, it's in between actually the Tennessee border and, um, and Louisville. And so uh, it's one of the largest caving systems in the world. And uh, at one point, um, it was used as a, a a mining company had during the war used it for salt pepper uh, pe- pepper uh, pewter mining and then uh, so they used it went had uh, black folk were in the caves you know uh, doing mine mining for the salt pepper mm. and then um, uh, black folk learned the caving system and they created their own. Um, they were they were actually tour guides for people going down into those mines early on, uh, before, uh, like I said, before Mammoth Cave became a national park, where it was just a series of caves that they would uh, had their own lodging companies. Uh, they would, you know, have people come and stay overnight at the Hello Hotel, which was listed mm-hmm. in the Green Book in the like early '30s. Wow. Um, the 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 Branford family had a, a tour operation that went on, and that whole. There were several black families who wore history of black leadership in ca- or black tour guides in caves, but um, the one family had like seven, eight generations of people in their family that were led the tours. They learned from their their parents, huh. grandparents, uncles, and 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 led tours through those caves. And then when the National Park Service came, they uh, it, was, it was during segregation when they took over in the forties or something. They did not. Um, they changed all the tour guides, all the things to white uh, tour operators <laughs> and yeah. and um, wow. didn't continue. They broke the chain of the, or they stopped wow. that family from touring, you know. And they do so have an exhibit. Yeah, they have an exhibit in the park about the black family and caving uh, story, but they don't really, again, critique the park. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know why, why is it that you know now this seems like more mm. of an anomaly in the present day to yeah. have black association with this cave uh in touring and access when it was commonplace at one wow. point uh in the history of the caves so and then wow. um and then black folk actually constructed the national park as far they were part of these teams of the ccc uh, that went in during the depression and, and worked to um, create the build the Mammoth Cave National Park in and of itself. Huh. And yeah. one interesting thing about that is they put them on that job. <laughs> More black people worked in the CCC in that Kentucky Mammoth Cave area because it was remote. They thought it was remote mm. away from, you know, white folk and they could stay, you know, uh, you know, black mm. white folk felt safer. Uh, having black folk that remotely located, but they did all of the labor actually to much of the labor to build the park itself, the trails and the, (laughs) 
the you know the things that all go along with the national park. So uh, that yeah. part of the story too, that labor is kind of underplayed. Um, wow. So not only were they in the tour area, they were actually, you know, constructing the national park itself. That's really so. Cool. It's just so much layered history about Mammoth Cave. But if you go to Mammoth Cave today, you know, and look around at who's doing caving or all, you would not just come away with that magnitude mm-hmm. of that story at all. Yeah, which wow. is the biggest. Like, was a, is a very big surprise to me because most people will say caving. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Like caving, it's it's yeah, like it's it's a I guess a part of a, a local tourist industry that you don't really think about. Yeah. It's so I guess it's all particular to so few places that yeah. it's incredible and but not also not surprising to see the kind of knowledge that was built up over like like you said like seven eight generations and then yeah as soon as like the U.S. government tries to nationalize it it just sort of like the national institutional policies surrounding segregation sort of like breaks that yeah 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 and you know so just another kind of you know narrative about you know the parks and segregation and the choices they made um Mm -hmm. at the time you know at the inception of some of the parks uh and which goes into my bigger art question is like that is why i'm concerned why why they are asking why certain groups of people aren't coming to parks but these kinds of stories in uh, information about the park's founding or the park's history <laughs> come to the forefront in term, terms mm-hmm. of these questions is, you know, so yeah, I think it definitely needs to be a, a historical addition to some of those kind of questions is before you just go off and kind of strategize all these, you know, um, reasons why people aren't doing something when you don't have the historical context for creating it in the, right. a lot of that in the first place. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it sounds like creating that historical context, especially from the perspective of African-Americans who are experiencing that and whose stories often don't get told. I think that's been like an important part of, I think both your books. Yes. So your first book speaking for the enslaved mm-hmm. in 2012, like that one also like puts that alternate perspective that yes. isn't really alternate, but it's not the one that we hear. Yeah, right. Exactly. So like, how would you, cause you've introduced that as like a critical race perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, like how, how would you uh, sort of define critical race theory in terms of how you use it? Yeah. In terms of how I use it, I think that the main thing is that, especially within the history of anything to do with the United States, for sure, you cannot have a conversation about what people were, were not doing or, or uh, any, um, in anything, in any context, without understanding um, the legal uh, ramifications of slavery and and segregation. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so a critical race perspective always brings that to play when you're analyzing or you're talking about um, people in in the present, in their current uh, associations, how did that community get started or why... uh, what's going on with that community today without actually bringing in the role of race uh, uh, exclusion practices, which is mostly in the the new book is really highlighting exclusion, which is critical race in the fact that people were excluded based on racial, um, arbitrary racial um, um, decisions and classifications. And without having that as your core understanding, 
I, I think you, 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 you just basically end up missing, <laughs> just missing mm-hmm. um, the frame of the picture because it's just no yeah. understanding it without, you know, filtering it through because everything has been filtered through uh, that context for especially um, um, people who were segregate uh, victims marginalized through segregation practices. So without and and slavery, enslavement, whether they were enslaved or not, the the history of that has filtered into the laws and into um, uh, through segregation and, um, and, and many of the things that are still in place today. So without understanding that, I think you come up, you either try to reinvent the wheel or you come up with different um, explanations for things that are, that are weak. <laughs> they really lack uh, the, the foundation of really pinning, uh, putting it all together. So from my perspective, um, making sure you understand that uh, as your base is, is just a requirement because that is with what everything, whether we like it or not, in the U.S. anyways, have been built mm-hmm. on those systems. Um, yeah. And, and, and like I said, yeah. no matter how much research I do, the more I find out, especially like segregation or the, the ramifications of um, laws that came into existence during slavery, it's just so clear. Like it's just so many things that were predicated on on the inferiority of black folk or the superiority of whiteness in order to create um, place, spaces and places where people can move and operate uh, in right. the law and everything else. So, and that's the thing about the book too. I talk about geography, architecture, law, mm. and social controls that people were in place that kept people from um, accessing things. So I look at it from an even wider frame than the enslavement in the first book. Right. Yeah, and it, it makes sense because, especially how you're using critical race theory. I mean, it and how it is used. It's like contextual in terms of drawing in a history of institutions, of policy practices, and ultimately the narratives of the people who are being directly affected mm-hmm. by them. And yeah, like because those are the narratives that aren't really being communicated most of the time. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that you're missing out, and like you said, like filtering through and just like mm-hmm. not getting those stories and. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it seems benign if you don't add the human component, the actual lived experience of people who were on the other side of uh, those things. When people say just move on or let's go, we, everybody wants to move on, but you can't um, oh, totally move on unless you actually acknowledge what's still embedded in the system. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and I think yeah. having human uh, people's stories. Uh, trace through shows like how what that looks like <laughs> to to have that entrenched in a family's history or a community's history or park's history. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah. And another thing that well, a few things stood out to me about uh, your first book. Uh huh. But um, I think one of the things that I remember I remember walking away from your critical race discourse class with was kind of the usage of the term like enslaved African versus <laughs> slaves, yes. which, mm-hmm. which whenever I see anything like a new movie it pops up on Netflix or a comedian or <laughs> anything in popular media, they still use like slaves to yeah. denote like enslaved Africans. So I don't know if you could speak on like sort of the, the importance that you see in using the that language mm-hmm. uh, versus the like one that's used in popular media. Yeah. Yeah, it always makes me cringe <laughs> when, yeah. you know, somebody yeah. says slave this Same. or those are slaves or whatever. And uh, 
because to me, and I, I impress upon this in the book, it's like it, it's it's almost a re-enslavement at that point mm-hmm. because already you strip uh, whoever you're calling, uh, giving that label to, you're stripping them of ever having been a person other than uh, enslaved in the first place. Like this person was always that position. <laughs> Right. And there's no room between the person and, and the status that was imposed on them. And so to keep doing that, you just continue to place uh, equality between a status that was forced upon a group of people and, a, and by law and, and custom and all, you know, all levels of things. You continue to do that in the present and you do yeah. not acknowledge that that was a process that happened. And when you say enslaved, then you have to say something was done to create that. And it opens right. up the the uh, frame and who was enslaving, who was doing that, <laughs> mm-hmm. and who were the people that that was done to, who was doing what uh, to that group of people. So you you forced the conversation to be a lot more critical. Right. Uh, and, yeah. and so that's why uh, I really have to call people when they if they keep using the term uh, slave as opposed to enslaved, because then we are not in the right conversation, especially for the 21st century. <laughs> we need right. to be in a different conversation around um, that period or what happened. And, and even when going forward to people that are in, in, enslaved in this time period and diff- for different reasons. So um, you, you need to make sure you, you hold the system accountable and the, and the process accountable and up to the frame uh, as well as who uh, this happened to. And so mm-hmm. um, that's why I think it's critical that people have those kind of conversations and uh, don't collapse, uh, automatically collapse that uh, mm. <laughs> that title or that circumstance as equivalent to the people who that was happening to. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's so important. And that's something that's so mindless within our language. That yeah, we, we don't. Well. Yeah. And language, you know, you know is, is what sets the tone. And, uh, uh, you know, and that's the thing. We we keep it as natural. The more you say slave and equate that with black, then it really naturalizes that more and more, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. and that's not, you know, that's not productive. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> it, it really... Um, I think something that came out in your new book that you said that sort of made me think about something was uh, how you, you mentioned the belief in the 1920, in 1928 New Orleans uh, that the presence of black swimmers would depress property values. <laughs> yeah. And um, I, know, I had an interesting thought reading that. And uh, it's like how our cultural beliefs about things and our evaluation of them lead to like these very like materialistic results mm-hmm. that we then use to say like it legitimizes it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So back then it was like property value decreases. We see those numbers happen. Yeah. So therefore right. having black swimmers around here isn't a good thing. Yeah. And it rem- it reminded me in some ways in a very different way of like the COVID-19 epidemic yes, or mm-hmm. pandemic mm-hmm. where everyone bought toilet paper. <laughs> it's like everyone had the value, probably that like issues with hygiene, who knows? Like, yeah. But either way, people are buying out all the toilet paper, and yeah. now there is no toilet paper. Yes. Like even going to the store. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I can't. I can't get toilet yeah, paper. Yeah, right. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and so now that there's no toilet paper, I think there's a belief that we need toilet paper. Right. <laughs> even though it's so arbitrary, you know. 
right, right, right. <laughs> it's just, I don't know, like values and like the material results of them yeah. seem to like create this feedback yes, where it, yeah. we then believe in it even more. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's, that's a good, yeah, you know, that's a connection. That's definitely good. <laughs> <laughs> the consumer yeah. nature of that the consumerism around <laughs> people's drive to exclude people yeah <laughs> or exclude yeah, something <laughs> and you got your uh was it your bachelor's or your master's in business i have my a master's in business master's. Yes. Do you have an mba yes okay yeah. so, do you feel like that gives you like another perspective and seeing like what the the market's sucking like or, or any of your analyses for it for the COVID-19 yeah 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 um I mean I think it the way it is now I don't I don't think anybody needs a business degree just to, <laughs> <laughs> this is so extreme at this point yeah. <laughs> the economics I think uh from a business standpoint um if I was only now, this is a this is a inverse. If I was only in my business mode, mm -hmm. then you know, I I I would be arguing. You know, I can the businesses want to get back in. They want to continue making money. I mean, that's the drive. That's what you do. So yeah. the people aspect would probably be a less of an emphasis. And with yeah. seeing this in totality. Uh, from my own lived live experience and then from an anthropological, anthropological lens, you know, there's way more nuance to the, the argument. You just can't get, just get back to work. <laughs> like, you know, right. so that mm -hmm. simplicity of the business argument becomes like, it, it reminds me of, wow, that, you know, that I can, he I know that, I know that argument and I know that perspective and, you know, that's the knee-jerk thing in our, our capitalistic system is that, that, is what we lead with. <laughs> how are we gonna? How are we gonna get back to the economy? How are we gonna make money? How are we gonna? Yeah. You know, and money. Then everybody needs money because that's we are our customer. Like everything runs on money. It does. We work for money so we can do other things with the money. So we're all, we are all integrated into it. Mm -hmm. But this kind of uh, pandemic or the crisis shows that again, maybe. <laughs> We need to really rethink why we are, you know, so hooked into that money as the as the only driver of every, the money being the driver of everything. Yeah, and we're showing is showing like other things are very important when you're in a pandemic that doesn't have to do with money. <laughs> it has yeah. to do a lot with relationships and and relating, <laughs> trading. Yeah. It's all kinds of other things you could do. Yeah. And oh, I think it's highlighting, you know, it's really putting, you know, business in on the on the trial again because it's it's so many other ways to to relate to uh, to get your family, corporations, and things in, in motion. It doesn't always have to be driven by money, but we're hooked now, so we now may have to <laughs> really seriously rethink that again. Now, given this situation, it's another opportunity for change, and maybe some other modes will you know take hold yeah you know so we so won't true. have to start all over every single every time some crisis hits and then suddenly everybody's you know scrambling back to something that is more human right <laughs> yeah yeah it's so true like even now the decisions to like open up the country or open up states again like it, a lot of 
I guess public health professionals were saying like it's kind of premature to be yeah, talking about that yeah. so far. But the thing that stood out to me was like recent statistics on like African Americans making up all like eight of Richmond's coronavirus deaths, even yeah. though they're like forty eight percent of the city's yes, population. Yes. And St. Louis, Missouri was similar. I think mm-hmm. at the beginning of the month there was nineteen deaths, all of them African American mm-hmm. again. So it's just yeah, like what do you think about those like yeah, those disparities and the fact that even in this, you could probably ultimately see the differences in experiences of people based off of race, yeah. you know, even in this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely exposes um, it exposes the system again, uh, uh, just what we were saying in the beginning, without a critical race lens, <laughs> you know, all of this looks like odd or strange, but once you are you you peel back that lens and, and or look through that lens, you you can see uh, the vulnerabilities in the system, the vulnerabilities of, of the histories of entire communities and people that have already always been there. <laughs> yeah. And um, you know, you know, a pandemic. This one exposes it to the extreme, all the way to you know actual death of uh, a disproportionately amount of deaths. And it's not even. The, the thing that's even more disconcerting is not even uh, strictly that you may get the virus and, and, um, and because of your exposure, maybe on frontline uh, jobs that require you to be in interface and, 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 and not safe. Um, mm-hmm. But even if you get it, the other part is which people have started to really critique is that when you go to the hospital, you aren't getting the care, like your, the, the yeah. level of care, the differential and actual care once you make it to the facility that could supposedly help you there's so many disparities built into that system yeah. that you know the disproportionate amount of people die black folk dying in care <laughs> in care uh and yeah. again exposes you know this idea you know the ideas people have around um you know black bodies and health and um you know and what what they should what should or should not be offered to them or uh, so, uh, it, it's just opening up the, you know, the whole, uh, panorama again of what all of that means. Right. Um, yeah. Cause those are already pre-existing like health disparities. Yes. <laughs> and it's just playing out in a, mm-hmm. another way yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. And I think this is an opportunity, like the, the pan, uh, pandemic and the, 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 the sheer numbers of people that more people are focusing on it. So hopefully the, the greater amount of focus will be some kind of change. I, yeah. You know, that's the only hope of some of this is that because of the sheer, unfortunately, the sheer numbers of people and the amount of people that are now really, you know, looking at this, um, mm. you know, maybe people can come together and, and figure out uh, mm. start a start more than a conversation, but just start some kind of actual active ways of getting, um, you know, not having this happen again. So. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. And and thinking about like, what does that change even look like? It's mm-hmm. it's it's one of those things that's been built up over so long. I mean, we we've had these like statistics on health disparities have been around for probably hundreds of years now. Mm-hmm. Like it's been so long that, that scholars and other like public health people have captured the fact that people of African descent in the United States are more prone to certain diseases. And for a while it was like, it's probably biological that they're 
you know, more prone to it for whatever, like inherent reason. Mm -hmm. But the more time's gone on, the more that we've seen, well, no, it's not biological because not all people have have the same disparities. Mm -hmm. In fact, when they migrate here to the United States, that's when those disparities Mm -hmm. start in the next generation. Mm -hmm. So in thinking about like what those changes would look like, it's almost, I, it's almost, yeah, unimaginable because it would take this like really big fundamental shift in our attitudes about what like, I don't know, people, I don't know, like how do we attend to their health Mm -hmm. in these like more holistic ways rather than just saying we need to allocate money to this one endeavor and that's, that's just it. Yeah. I think uh, when I'm looking out across the, a lot of things have changed in the sense that the type of people in leadership, for example, it's several um, uh, African-American female mayors Mm -hmm. in places. And I think, you know, when you, uh, and, and if you look at the pockets of success where people are able to um, are addressing these things in a more um, constructive and, and, and uh, progressive manner, um, I think that's what needs, that's where the light should be sh- uh, sh- uh, shown on that more. And I think mm-hmm. thinking and listening to these um, mayors who are uh, particularly African-American or Black folk who are or people in under uh, underrepresented communities who are leading whole places as mayor or governors or wherever to, to, to really pay attention and be mindful of the things they're asking for, the things they're seeing, the things they're looking across it at a very, like you already said, in a very uh, broad manner, holistic manner, putting they have to look at it in a systems uh, standpoint. Mm-hmm. So these these people are seeing the resources they need. They're seeing the across the board of things that could help. And I think the more we pay attention to people who are uh, in those kinds of positions of power or influence or decision-making capacities and see what they're seeing and asking for, uh, those are, I think that's where we need to start because these mm-hmm. people really, um, they're trying, you know, they're tra- solving a complex, um, you know, problem and they're often lacking the the least <laughs> the least able to get the materials and things that they need but i think more focus should be focused uh placed on what it is they're asking for what it is how are they strategizing about how to solve and do things and especially if they had the resources what else could they have could do what else could they do mm-hmm. uh, and i think they're limited uh, in the in their resources, but not limited in their uh, strategies. <laughs> I think right. they really have good strategies and good ideas about what needs to be done, and more emphasis needs to be placed on that. That's the last place, really, kind of people. You know, they they I see them interviewing people like, oh yeah, it's bad there, and that's like the, the interview <laughs> on mm-hmm. just you know why is it that is you know what do you think about what people are saying about why it's bad there? But I don't think they to look at the strategies, the things that they're trying to put in place. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, that's so true. It's way more complicated. Yeah. yeah. But I, like I said, I think mm-hmm. people are thinking of them, but though we don't place emphasis on those, mm-hmm. where we put the camera, where we put our energy into yeah. know, to working with. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so true. Because like, um, um, mm-hmm. well, the, the Como... Como and 
in New York. I mean, he's getting, you know, he's, right. he can take up a lot of oxygen. <laughs> I mean, and yes, I mean, he's New York. And it's, I mean, of course, that's a big platform. But, yeah. but you know, like the mayor of Chicago, I mean, she has a... <laughs> She has a daunting task too, and she, you know, we don't have a briefing where we get <laughs> mm-hmm. that. That is not broadcast, or that is not our focus. No, no, that's so true. Yeah, <laughs> about how she's putting it all together and thinking about it, and <laughs> yeah, how how uh, yeah, how is she thinking about it? Yeah, I think you know. Well, from what I gather, I mean, again, she she knows she's working with really a lot of the grassroots uh, community level operations because a lot of these uh, in in any anthropology, you know, we know this, that these blanket one size fit all solutions about how to get the message out about how to protect yourself from uh, or stay safe in the middle in, uh, of the corona uh, virus pandemic is in all of that messaging has to be tailored in a meet people where they are. You have to go to the churches. You have to go to mm-hmm. the, the uh, clubs where the health, uh, the beauty, so wherever people hang out and feel that that are people of where they get their uh, information from that they feel that is trustworthy. You have mm-hmm. to re look at those channels. It's not the same channels sometimes as, as, you know, the national news, even, even maybe some of the local news stations, you, you have to go down maybe to a radio station level. Like, like what are the stations and places where people are really paying attention? And that's mm. what she's started. She's partnering with these mm. kinds of really grassroots organizations to, you know, at least even just to get the messaging across that, that this is a problem for black mm. folk, first of all, that we they need to be paying attention and there are things that can be done. And then what are those kinds of needs in those particular communities? And and mm. because you're more at risk, what are those facilities that folk are, be going to, are going to be going to? And maybe their first line of going to may not be one of the major hospitals, maybe uh, one of the clinics in the area. Uh, you know, mm. those are the places that may need to have the resources because that's where the most people are going to be uh, going um, that may be contracted or need to be tested or whatever. So, you know, mm. being, yeah, meeting uh, people where they are. Yeah. And transportation yeah. and all those things may not be that you can just jump in your car and go to a drive through testing over, mm. you know, on the other side of town or wherever it is that may, that's not, it's not ever going to happen. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. God. <laughs> That's the other thing. It's like testing is so lacking all over the country. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's even, it's like you have to wonder if it's probably worse than we think it is yeah. just because <laughs> testing puts a limit on it. Yes. I can't really know right now. <laughs> right, it's, right. Uh, you know, that's the, that's the yeah. big unknown uh, that mm-hmm. is looming over all of our heads because we really don't yeah. know. <laughs> no. No, we don't. <laughs> how, yeah. how, how prevalent it is or <laughs> where the pockets or not mm-hmm. anything really yeah you know? it's really crazy like preliminary like studies and i think la said it could be as high as like four percent of the population yeah at least in la yeah. county and then i think another populous uh city had it as high as like mm-hmm. i think 14 like mm-hmm. it was it was mm-hmm. really wide in yeah. terms of like how many mm-hmm. people have it and it also 
probably depends on like what pockets of the population are being studied more and being right. pulled right. from in order to mm-hmm. conduct those types of mm-hmm. tests anyways and mm-hmm. you have to wonder if like yeah black communities are going to be being unrepresented or underrepresented even yeah. in those yeah. like right. trial studies mm-hmm. yeah yeah because That's a really lot true. of times those communities or people communities of color period that requires you to go in like you have to go into the like we i was just mm-hmm. saying go into places where those folk are as opposed to thinking that they're going to somehow surface on the, the precise place that you said this <laughs> mm-hmm. this test or this thing is going to happen yeah this it's just not it's not how to reach a lot of those kinds of po- those populations yeah yeah it's really wow and um, then the history of, of of what happens when you present yourself in hospitals and things anyways uh, black mm-hmm. people people of color have been subject to testing and trials and things that have not worked out well for them as a people you know what i'm saying so it's already a level of in some ways sometimes it's a level of distrust um that people may still um have about these people who are you know giving them this information that's why again the messenger is important in some Mm -hmm. communities so that they need to see it come from people Mm -hmm. that they actually trust right (laughs) With yeah. The information. <laughs> yeah, that's so important. Like that, the not only the messengers, but even lots of the leadership can yes. actually reflect their own needs mm-hmm. and interests. That's that's really important and valuable. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 a pandemic though. It's very it's a it's a very good look exposure to all of the mm. things that you've been talking about in this conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it absolutely is. <laughs> and how how have you been spending the uh, quarantine yeah. <laughs> in, in my house uh, <laughs> uh it in the house uh, but luckily being in florida it's it's mm-hmm. it's a different kind of thing because out you can always be outside and that didn't mm-hmm. that's not cha- like the weather's nice <laughs> yeah. you can go you know walking or or you know mm-hmm. um i have a <laughs> garden and um and the oh, things nice. that I do out in my yard, like, you know, so I, I can do all of those kinds of things. So I, I don't feel totally confined. It's odd not to have the routine I had in terms of going to campus or actually going to work or whatever. But, yeah. but, but feeling totally confined, I don't feel that. I feel a little bit more freedom because actually, you know, I don't, I have so many things that now, a lot of those things are totally off the plate because they just not traveling and all kinds of other things that I would do. Mostly travel. I travel a lot. So that is <laughs> off the table. So it's kind of a relief in the sense that it gives me a a pause that I don't have to explain. It's like you don't have to explain anything about <laughs> why you aren't going anywhere. <laughs> Extended no, vacation. Yeah, huh? everybody's not going. <laughs> no one's going anywhere, really. So, yeah. you know. Uh, so that, that part is, um, is a relief, but it, um, but the, on the flip side, not being able to travel and not being able mm-hmm. to get, um, to places and to family and, uh, things mm-hmm. like that, that's, that's, that's kind of hard because being someplace that different from where the majority of my family is, it's, it's, mm. it's hard on that, in that regard. Um, right. luckily everybody is pretty much in my immediate family. Everybody's healthy. So I don't feel like stressed about yeah. their health. I just feel That's like good. I just want to, you know, be with, you know, be closer when you're isolated or have to stay put. It's good mm-hmm. to kind of be with your 
with your group <laughs> or your, you yeah. know, your family and stuff and sort of, or close enough that you can, you know, see them. Um, yeah. So that's, that's hard. That's the hardest. I think that's the hardest part about, um, about this um, pandemic and being somewhere else that I, that my family is not at. Yeah. Do, do you feel like you've been able to like communicate with your family in other ways? Cause I know a lot of people are doing zoom conversations mm-hmm. and even like playing games over, <laughs> over chat. I don't know if you've gotten into any of those. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I'm on Zoom. Uh, I'm on Zoom and social media overload too. So sort of, I like. I know it's good for connection, but now that it's also become an area for work, mm. it's like, oh God, I don't like. I don't really want to spend an extended amount of time <laughs> zooming and doing all that stuff because now it reminds me of work. Because when I get yeah. on, it's a or a meeting or. Uh, my class or something so mm-hmm. now it's really <laughs> it's, it's a little hard but i think now i appreciate the telephone more like being oh, able to yeah. talk, like, you know talk even just to have the um, speakerphone and have conversations where it does, it's like simple yeah yeah <laughs> call up you hear voice you could you know have communicate you don't have to do any of the stuff and you don't mm-hmm. have to um you know um you know feel the kinds of uh, pressures maybe to, you know, keep the line up and all those kinds of things. So it's just a, it's a different mm-hmm. kind of thing. I, I appreciate phone more. Yeah. Um, it's, it's definitely simpler. Just have the phone, something about the zoom conversation now hitting into like this, what sixth week that yeah. we're doing it. It just feels like draining. I don't want to be doing it in class setting anymore. <laughs> right. No, it's, it's right. And somebody <laughs> was telling me it's like zoom or these kinds of things. You, all of the, like all of the, all of the event, uh, all of the stress and the or the engagement overhead, but none of the actual advantage. You don't really get the, mm-hmm. you don't really get the personal contact mm-hmm. in, in the in the degree. Like you get none of the really uh, touchy feely kind of things that you get with a inter- a real direct interaction. So you yeah. kind of you kind of get. <laughs> a screen and there you are and you are kind of get your your psychologically you're kind of wanting some more engagement but just it's just it's and ultimately it's just a screen yeah yeah (laughs) it's even worse than like a class if you have like seven of you there it's like zoom wasn't meant for interaction it was meant for presentation (laughs) so it's like (laughs) i could kind of tune out when i get in the class just (laughs) yeah 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 uh, no, no. I could have told on myself there, but yeah, I know. Hey, I know that's what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> no news to a professor. <laughs> no news. It's the end of the semester, so it's only a week to go. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> chalk it up to the yeah. pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. <laughs> But yeah, no, so that's, I mean, so it's, it's hard. It's, it's strange now what this technology is good, but then it's, it's got, it's, it's exposing its limits. Yeah, no, it definitely is. I guess it's exposing all of our limits in lots of ways. Yeah. This pandemic. Yeah. Mm. And I think what I got from my undergrads, which I like, <laughs> I'm going to use it now because they are so appreciative of the library and actually like, uh-huh. I never, like they're like, oh, we missed the library, you missed <laughs> being able to go and study and do, yeah. like, like they really are longing, <laughs> mm. you know, for spaces where they could actually physically be um, yeah. 
either, you know, even if they're working alone, but they're in, you know, uh, in community, in uh, a setting, um, you know, that they have access to, um, you know, materials they need or other people if they want to talk to or not, but they just miss, Mm -hmm. they just miss being able to go. And I didn't realize how, I mean, I did, but I didn't realize for students how, Mm -hmm. especially undergrads, how Mm -hmm. intimate uh, they were, and you know, they didn't either. I don't think that the library mm. was to them. <laughs> yeah, just something so like true. that, something simple like just the library. <laughs> yeah, like the social aspect, even in learning, yes. is this huge thing. Like that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, I know for us grad students, like being able to have the lounge and be able to talk to our classmates mm-hmm. between classes or after classes or just when we're just hanging out, mm-hmm. like that's. An important like aspect of like yeah talking about some of the material and not getting that mm-hmm. it's been yeah different yeah 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 the, the check-in the ability to check check in with people yeah yeah and then yeah. so you know sometimes you don't want to be um you know something happens in a moment that you don't need you know is that's if you aren't face-to-face it wouldn't happen or whatever right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah that's so true yeah so, yeah, so it's uh, it's yeah. it's been it's been a challenge. I think yeah. this next semester, summer will be harder than fall. I mean, uh, than spring was for this mm-hmm. online remote teaching. I was just thinking the fact that we had like three quarters of the semester face to face. So you mm-hmm. build a re- you built a rapport. So when I'm mm-hmm. engaging with students, at least I know them. Like I know their personality. I know the personality of the class, and the class really knows each other you know, yeah. in a different way. Um, so even if you're just online, you still have a feel of, you know, who that person is and the, the relationship you kind of had built with them before you mm-hmm. had to totally do this. But, That's true. But when you, when this uh, summer happens, when the, all the classes are starting out online, if you're not, you're not signing up for an online class, but then it's going to be an online class experience because you really won't know the people at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, really it's really incredible. It's like uh like there's a lot of like online classes being offered through websites like Coursera yeah. and other ones that like already have that format where you don't really talk to people face to face. It's always always mm. through like text yeah. or maybe yeah. videos. But yeah. Yeah, like having that is a completely different experience. It's like by no means no. Yeah. in any way the same. It's it's completely different. And I know that universities are having to see how they're gonna be like tuition charges yes yeah i know there was talks about refunding part of the tuition because it wasn't the campus experience that students paid mm-hmm. for yeah and it's going to be interesting yeah and the dorm fees for people who are were, right and all those kinds of things probably have to be refunded or something has to be thought of about um maybe they apply it to the next semester mm-hmm. or something i don't know yeah um yeah Again, like money becomes the bottom yes. line. Yes, <laughs> again, money. <laughs> it's like the airlines. You are not getting your money back. Yeah. You, you Plus, we're going to call you a change fee. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's all the stuff coming up in the fall. Like the whole big question is, what is the fall offering going to look like? Is it going to be mm-hmm. like the summer model, this model we have mm-hmm. now that we're in? Mm-hmm. Um, mm. so that's God. that's the million dollar question right now and triple a yeah. is even american anthropology association is really even trying to figure out what they're going to do about their con- their upcoming conference in november right yeah yeah 
So it's going to be, I wonder if, uh, what is it? Cause I was reading something that said it might even last until 2022, like mm. sort of yeah. mm. the quarantine or at least like having maybe this semester quarantined and maybe not this one. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that kind of like staggered schedule could be applied to like a single semester where it's like classes are meeting only like these weeks face to face and maybe not these weeks. Yeah. So maybe they're going to be like less people on campus. Yeah. That, that I, may I be a scenario. Be, yeah. That may be a scenario yeah. because at that point, it's sort of like this semester, but more planned out because then, exactly. it, you know, yeah. uh, so, and it would, you know, allow people to utilize the buildings and, the, and, and get some kind of a on-campus experience. Uh, right. But yeah. In, yeah, but without testing again, you don't really, I don't, I don't, you know, mm. you still, I, I think certain classrooms too, you know, I was talking mm-hmm. to somebody, certain classrooms would be off the table because they mm-hmm. the the air circular the quality of mm-hmm. uh, that they're small or they're the quality of air <laughs> circulation yeah. is already not good so you don't want yeah. to be in this kind of situation and and be in a small place with not a good circulation so maybe they would even have to evaluate what classrooms are mm-hmm. conducive if they are even going to have people yeah uh, taking you know on campus actually mm-hmm. having a campus experience yeah that's really I wonder <laughs> this might be out there, but what about VR? Like people put on the goggles and they're in the classroom. <laughs> they can see the people next to them. I don't know, I don't know if that's a little bit too much, but <laughs> that that Bacon. is it. There we go. That's taking, <laughs> that's taking it up to the next level. <laughs> yeah. You can be as close as you want if it's VR. Yeah. Right here. VR with your and you have a, a head thing in the end. I think add something over your nose and yeah. everything else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. That yeah. That uh, it could happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, like, of course, good luck. You know, next semester, and I know, like, being chair in the beginning of. Yeah. And in the intermediary of a pandemic, it's got to be <laughs> challenging, but it will be, it will yeah. be, uh, you know, and like I said, I, I just hope to give people room to, you know, or flexibility, being flexible, I guess, is going to be the big, um, the big component of how to operate in, this, in that situation yeah. and, uh, and, and mm. hopefully listening to people with, you know, good ideas about <laughs> how to manage or how to, you know, help people manage. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, but, you know, like I said, I think, I think we are in a strong, at, in, at USF and in our department, I think we have a base, a good base to work from. So, um, yeah, I think thing it's possible. We'll, we'll definitely get through it. And I think we'll get through it mm-hmm. in, you know, a, a better shape than most people probably think at, first at first blush i think you know yeah things that need to change will be changed mm-hmm. <laughs> that's all part of it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh you know so we'll, we'll we'll see i mean i like i said i hopefully everybody comes with that kind of attitude that you know that they, that they you know think about other people besides their own just their own you know personal needs and be are willing to be flexible because that's, yeah. that's that's where we are right now yeah yeah having to be flexible it's a good way of thinking of it yeah yeah 
Yeah. And, you know, and I think the university at the university level so far has, you know, done a pretty good job of relaxing some of the standards or some of the things that are criteria, like evaluations. I think, you, you know, those are optional. Students could do, hmm. you know, differences in the types of grades they get. They can do pass, not pass, as opposed to grade. Right. I think that, you know, that, that they've done those kinds of things to, re, you know, relieve some of the, uh, the pressures that people are, are evaluated against given, right. you know, given people's inability to can really control any of some of their environment in which they're learning or teaching. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. It's good. Yeah. That kind of flexibility and yeah, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what comes of it and how long it lasts. Cause I think that's the thing that's been on my mind. Like if it lasts till the fall, like what's that going to look like? Cause I know funding and universities <laughs> yeah, yeah. is already diminished yeah, and yeah. it's only going to go lower. Right. And, yeah. Don't even yeah. talk to me about like, I don't, that's <laughs> the thing, budget <laughs> yeah. becomes the thing, you know, it's already tight and it's, uh, you know, from this new positions level, thinking about the budget as in for a totality of, of the department, right? Department wise, and the things that have to be, you mm. know, give and take around, <laughs> yeah, you know, programs and access and things like that. So you'll have a set budget, and it's getting, yeah, I'm, wa- I'm watching it <laughs> shrink before my eyes. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's going to be a challenge, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I guess in terms of uh, your work mm-hmm. and even anthropology in general, the department at USF, is there anything else that you'd like like people to know about any of it? Um, I mean, I think, and I, I want people to know that, and this is the thing I'm stressing for the new team and then moving forward is that, um, you know, we have to be in a position to... Um, Uh, My work reflects the fact that I think I look at people who have been thinking of things that have been, um, as they call it, um, third space, people who have operated in critique of a system or outside of a system, a system in which they have been marginalized and they've, um, you know, seen ways to engage with that system and then also create uh, change, create movement within that system that opens it up to um, more opportunities for a broader range of people. And I think those kinds of ways that I've written about and watched uh, or in, in worked in communities with, those are the kinds of things I think inside of the department I want to, um, you know, emphasize that, you know, we don't have to, you know, always do things in the, the way it had previously been done. And we really need to really start looking at models of uh, people who have acted that have been maybe silenced voices or marginalized within systems mm. who offer um, a, uh, a way to move forward, especially in these kinds of situations when it's been high uh, stress or high, um, uh, lots of things in, in the way of, of blocking movement. And so we are mm. at that stage where things there are things, obstacles that seem quite... <laughs> daunting but it is these communities that have been often marginalized or underrepresented or not or silenced or we don't really go to them this is the time these are the communities these are the things that we need to pay more attention to and we and give ourselves the freedom to to operate differently operate um even maybe against the grain but at least think about 
uh, things that don't go in lockstep to the status quo because at this point the system has been exposed to hmm. its failures and we don't you know this is a time to to think about how to make a a, a, a change that you don't repeat and I and um, so I want to give people in the department or people who at this moment in time that kind of flexibility to think think like that and to reach for those kinds of things to at least offer them to try, to try if that's what, you know, if they have an idea from a thing of a place that's not typically something that we pay attention to, this is the time to think about that and give voice to those kinds of things. And I want to encourage people to, you know, try some of these things that have been kind of maybe back burner or just not center stage uh, in, in a department or in university period. And, that's the kind of thing I just want to leave people with the fact that I'm, it's open. I'm open to those kinds of thinkings and those kinds of strategizing. So, um, mm. you know, we can always, <laughs> we can, well, I don't know if we can go back anymore, but, you know, mm. but it's always, you know, easier to get in line if you have to, but it's harder. And now we have the time to, to think about things that really would make it better for a, how do we want to build for a longer term interaction if we really want to expand mm-hmm. um, opportunities for a larger group of people and and, and, and and introduce new ways of different ways of doing things. It's time and I'm interested and I'm open. And so I think that's, mm-hmm. that's what the message is that I want to leave that, you know, this is the time you, you can think about new ways of doing things that are different and let's, let's, let's give it a try. I mean, yeah, I'm going to keep think... the, I'm going to keep the basic ship running. I'm not like I got to throw the doors open and like, <laughs> hopefully we meet the budget. No, like, no, I'm, that part is going to be running solid. I'm talking yeah. about, you know, how do we want to grow and how yeah. do we want to build beyond just the, the core of keeping the, the, the basic ship floating? I'm mean, going to do that. I'm not going to, all of that will, my business sense will require that we just, <laughs> we will keep ourselves afloat. But yeah. I'm talking about how do we, you know, really create something um, different or create something that we we all would like to um, to see and participate in that would create uh, create a space for a larger uh, amount of people or different people in a different way. So that's, you know, beyond the basics. Like, what do we want to do? Yeah, it's like a, an opportunity for innovation. It sounds yeah, like. yeah. So that we'll have, yeah. So that's what I. I say creative change, you know, people, it's time to, if this is the time, if you have some really good ideas and, and you want to give it a shot, well, this is a, this is the moment. Like I said, like I said, it's not gonna, I'm not gonna try to, we'll have the basics, but now it's time to do beyond the basics. If, if people want to consider that, it'll yeah. be a platform. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And this, these kinds of things you're doing is one of the, you know, these are the kinds of platforms and, and, and forums where people really need to, you know, think of new ways to do, you know, use technology to get our uh, anthropology out there. I want anthropology, like, mm-hmm. at the site of the the, the conversation, <laughs> not mm-hmm. like an afterthought. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, one of the things that stand out from reading any, like, ethnography, um, especially like yours that has such rich narratives and perspectives and then being able to combine that with like thinking about theory, which tends to be embedded in like really like <laughs> critical thinking and almost philosophical thinking in a lot of ways, like how those different things like intersect 
and they intersect with daily lives for everybody. Like that's just so rich and really yeah. getting it out there is just an important aspect of that. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I'm going to look yeah. to graduate students more too, because they, you know, they're the people that are out on the, on the way out there closer to, you know, the community and people and the new things and, um, mm. that are happening and they have to be, you have to be right. your own survival <laughs> as a yeah. professional. So, you know, you got to take advantage of that and also encourage, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, folk to be out, out in community and in conversation to, right. to make sure anthropologists have a place and are seen as uh, valid participants. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 That sounds really awesome. <laughs> Well, thank you so much yeah. for making the time and I hope you have a wonderful summer. I don't know if you have any summer plans or if they've Not- been <laughs> <changed> up. <laughs> transition. Everybody <Yeah>. transition. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. Uh, well, hopefully when travel opens up, I'll get uh, some trips in, but we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, uh, that, that uh, all the plans are in flux right now. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess as well as it should be. Yeah, yeah. You never know. Yeah. So I yeah. wish you luck, and I'm glad that you have, uh, you know, stepping up for lots of different things in the department. So I'm very yeah. excited <laughs> and happy for your participation. And yeah, I absolutely. Think, <laughs> I'm excited too. <laughs> Ambassadors. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you so much. I really appreciate, like, yeah, you reaching out, you uh, giving me opportunities and even, yeah, giving, giving me the opportunity to, to interview you and talk to you about all this. Yeah. yeah. Good. Well, you have a good rest of the day and end of the semester. Hopefully it ends strong. <laughs> yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. And you too. Okay. And definitely, well, we can talk offline. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> <About> next <time. laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Okay. <laughs> bye. All right. All right. Bye.